On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about the enormous changes that are coming to the Ontario healthcare system. A series in the spec and the St. Catherine Standard together, working together, are outlining what is going to be happening. It is substantial. Joanna Frickitich from The Spectator will explain it. We're going to be talking with Ed Tate, one of the good guys in the CFL, writes for the Bombers website right now, used to be with the Winnipeg Free Press, talking about this game on Friday between the Ticats and Bombers, the two teams in the league with the longest Grey Cup droughts, and yet it looks like one of them... I don't know, it's early, but one of them might be able to do it this year. They're the two best teams in the league right now. And Lorraine Segato from the Parachute Club, you know, singer of Rise Up, joins us to talk about a re-release. In fact, two, no, three re-releases and redos of that iconic Canadian song, Rise Up. Hamilton singer, great Canadian artist. She joins us. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I want to bring on Joanna Frickitich, who is the Spectator's health reporter, who is one of the authors of this. Uh, great job, by the way, Joanna, on this series. It's a great series, and it's, it is, as, as I say, exhaustive. It's a ton of work, but well done. Thanks so much, Scott, and thanks for having me. Uh, so, again, if we were going to do this justice, you'd have to be on here for the next 17 straight hours because there's <laughs> an awful lot of stuff going on, and I want to keep this as simple as possible. But let's just go through a few things here to establish whether we're on the same page or not. Uh, the healthcare system right now, as it stands, whether you think it's working great or working not so great, most people agree that it is still a very difficult maze to navigate, correct? Well, that is one of the biggest problems with the healthcare system is patients uh, find it really difficult to navigate and the system is very siloed. So when you get passed on from one part of the system to the next part of the system, that is when patients often fall through the gaps because those um, providers don't necessarily talk to each other and, uh, you know, patients can sort of get lost in that. The other thing patients find really frustrating is that they have to constantly tell their stories over and over again. Which I find a little shocking, Joanna, and the reason I say that is because, now I know it's not law enforcement, but when the Paul Bernardo thing was going on, they had the Green Ribbon Task Force, and after that they discovered, you know, police departments don't share information very well. And one of the things that happened was all these police departments were now supposed to be dumping stuff into the same network, the same database. I'm shocked that that hasn't already happened with medical. Well, medicine is, uh, you know, when it comes to technology, they're pretty, they're pretty far behind. Some of the problem is patient confidentiality. They need to make sure to do this in a way that your medical records are secure. But really, you know, you're, there isn't one electronic medical record that, you know, the hospital has and your doctor has, you know, and the specialist that you go to has. And the other thing that technology isn't used very much for right now is, you know, things such as virtual appointments where, you know, if you're sent home from the hospital and there's an issue with your wound, that you could take a picture of it and send it to the doctor and they could say, yes, we need you to come in or no, that's good, or we're going to send a nurse. You know, those types of things are things that the medical system really need to catch up on. And even the people who are in the system are agreeing that it's difficult to navigate. This is not something they're denying and everyone else is arguing for. Oh, no, no one would say that the system um, is uh, easy to navigate. I think everyone, everyone agrees that one of the things that, you know, we really need to work on is to help patients get through that system. And in fact, in Hamilton, we created St. Joe's Hospital. They created a, a model of care that tries to break down those barriers. It's actually one of the things that this um, restructuring is based off of. And one of the key parts of that that model of care is not having to navigate the healthcare system on your own, that you have a number you can call 24-7 to, to get help. You know who your team is. Your team works together at home and in the hospital. 
So, I mean, there are attempts to break down those barriers, but it's pretty far from being a system that's easy to navigate right now. No, that's called bundled care, right? Yes, bundled care or integrative comprehensive care. And that exists, uh, it started at St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton, but it has vastly expanded. Hamilton Sciences uses it, as well as hospitals in Niagara and Kitchener and in quite a wide, um, in quite a wide area. And it has expanded to a number of different, um, diseases, uh, now. So, and a number of surgical patients. And from those who are experiencing this kind of system, are they saying that it's working or are they saying it's just no different? Uh, well, for the most part, people who go through this system uh, really like it. They, they have seen really good improvements when it comes to um, patients being in hospital less time, patients not having to go back to the emergency room, patients like that, you know, they have a phone number that they can call 24-7 and they will get access to someone who will tell them what to do. Um, and uh, so that's something that you know, overall patients have liked it. Now there are, this system obviously is not perfect. It doesn't, when you're discharged from bundled care, there's a bit of a worry that primary care isn't involved. And many feel that it's a bit too disease focused. You know, they would like to see it expanded that lots of different types of patients could use this. But for the most part, it's a system that uh, is um, really well uh, liked by patients and families. How have they got around, Joanna, you mentioned a moment ago, though, you've got things like privacy concerns and other things like that. How have they managed to get around those things that have been obstacles up until now? Well, for St. Joseph, um, St. Joseph itself actually has home care. Like, they they are a big system that has hospital and home care and long-term care. So for them, it's a bit easier because um, it's their same organization that does provide a lot of this uh, care. Um, I'm not really sure how each uh, group does it. I, I mean, each one would have to do it a little bit differently. Um, but I definitely think that's something that's surmountable. You know, you definitely can find ways to maintain patient confidentiality and have a medical record that, first of all, the patient owns and can see themselves, but also that different providers can be shared. Because as one of the doctors in this series says, we don't have the kind of resources that make it possible for doctors to do the same things over and over again. We need to only do them once. And I think this can't be overstated enough with our healthcare system right now. There are groups out there I know who right now would blanch and fight and kick and scream about the removal of even a single dollar from our healthcare system. But Ontario is already spending $65 billion a year. That's like $4,500 for every man, woman, and child in this province, 40% of our provincial budget. And that's still not enough. We're still running like 5 or $6 billion behind what we need. Something has to be done financially to try and make this better, doesn't it? Well, definitely... Um you know, definitely something needs to be done with the healthcare system because one of the biggest problems that has been chronic and, and plaguing the system for a long time is hallway medicine. And that is where you have um, people in the emergency department and in the wards of the hospitals that are lined up in hallways or in sunrooms or in boardrooms. And the hospitals have to open up beds that they don't get money for, which causes issues with their budgets. And, you know, this problem shows up in the hospital, but really a lot of its root causes have to do with a lack of community care, that'd be home care and long-term care, um, as well as some other types of care. And so we do need to find some solutions to, especially as the population is aging and growing, uh, to try and combat uh, hallway medicine. Because we could theoretically just keep pouring more and more and more billions into healthcare, and it probably would never be enough, Right. Well, I, healthcare does have a, a bit of a habit of being sensational, but I, I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, what a lot of, uh, 
people that we talked to for this series, a lot of leaders talked about the need to reorganize the way care is done or to, you know, put some more of that focus on the care in the community. There's a lot of debate over exactly what is needed or exactly where uh, things should change. Um, but, you know, with, without a doubt, some reorganization uh, needs to happen in order to try and ease up this log jam uh, in the hospitals that aren't good for patients, they're not good for the staff, they're not good for the hospitals themselves. Right. I, I don't think too many people want to see money taken out of the system, but I also don't think too many people want to see the n- amount we have to spend continuing to go up at record levels. I mean, if we can find a way to find efficiencies, and I don't mean, as I say, pairing money out of the system, but ways to make that money go further, that's a good thing. Well, the hope is that by reorganizing the healthcare system that you find savings and then you can put those savings uh, to things you know, like more home care or um, more long-term care or, you know, even some other, some new ideas such as maybe having supportive housing um, that could uh, help people uh, stay independent longer, um, you know, but whether this restructuring will create those savings, that's a matter uh, of debate, depending on which side you're on. Well, okay, so there, there's a pause, a potential positive. If we can find a way to streamline, as you say, so money can be put back into the system in a more usable way. The other side of this, I'm looking at, Joanna, you've covered healthcare for a long time. Uh, when you try to streamline a massive, enormous bureaucracy, that's like trying to herd cats because everyone has their fiefdom, everyone has their kingdom, everyone has their area. Nobody wants to give that up. This is, this is not going to be a simple process to try and do this. No, it's not a simple process. Although I do think that providers have really shown that they're willing to give it a try. I mean, when um, the province asked people to create Ontario health teams, so these are uh, teams of providers that would band together to sort of transform local care. Uh, They would uh, sort of oversee uh, the local care that you have in your area. They, you know, I'm not sure. definitely did not expect that they would get 150 applications and they got more than 150 applications and so you know clearly providers uh, are, are really willing to give it a try there was an application in Niagara Hamilton and Burlington and all three of those applications um, have been sent uh, to the next level so I think there is a willingness uh, to give things a try how far they're willing to go I guess we'll have to see and unfortunately a lot of this restructuring is very vague right now there mm. are not a lot of uh, details. But the St. Joe's one, the, the, the bundled care that is the example for this, w- that sounds like that was not top down. That was the this particular hospital, this particular system that came up with this, right? So they did it themselves. Yep. Yes, they did. they came up with it themselves, and uh, it was actually championed by the Liberal uh, government as it, you know, uh, gave the funding to expand that model and to try it out in different types of diseases, different types of patients, um, and. Uh, the, and now the Conservatives are looking at that model to replicate it. It is a bit different. Ontario Health teams um, are not just for patients coming out of hospital. You know, they would be, the idea is that eventually they would be for all patients in Ontario and would cover everything from birth right to right to death. That'll be a long time from now. It'll take a long time uh, for these teams. And every team, uh, it looks like it will be a bit different. There is no blueprint for these teams. We don't know how they'll be governed. We don't know how they'll function. We don't know any of those things. And the province has said that 
what will happen is the first teams uh, to the first teams created that there'll be lessons learned from them and that these teams will evolve over time. And what we really have to hope, every government that comes in, doesn't matter what stripe it is, always thinks that it can do the, uh, has a better idea than the one before and decides to change everything. So who knows, this may get partially put in place and then there's a change in direction again. We don't really know. As soon as you politicize this, though, it becomes a mess. Well, I have seen, um, I've now seen, three, as a health reporter, um, you know, I've been through the Micaris restructuring, and then when the Liberals came in, they created the local health integration networks and did their own restructuring, and now a Conservative government is getting rid of those uh, local health integration networks and, you know, creating a, a super agency um, that will oversee the entire healthcare system with these regional teams um, underneath it. And, you know, it's yet to be seen if this is the one that will make a difference. <laughs> we shall see. Uh, jo- go read Joanna and Grant LaFleche's piece they, from the St. Catherine Standard. You can find it at thespec.com. You can find it in the paper. It is well worth your time, especially because somewhere along the way, you're going to need this system. Uh, Joanna, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, again, thespec.com, you can find that series of stories. It is worth your time. It is dense. It is heavy, it is involved, but you will want to know what is coming. 40% of our provincial budget's going into this. You should read it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, it's a way back, but the 1990s was a great decade for the two teams that are playing at Tim Hortons Field tomorrow night. The Winnipeg, Winnipeg Blue Bombers, they won the first Grey Cup of the 90s in 1990, and then the Hamilton Ticats won the last Grey Cup of the 1990s, back in 1999. Since then, however, Zippo. Calgary's won four times since Hamilton last won. Toronto, Edmonton, BC, Montreal, three titles each. Saskatchewan has two. Ottawa, which didn't even even have a team for a lot of that time. Well, they got one. Hamilton? Eh. Winnipeg? Eh. Yeah. Yet... Here's the good news. I mean, that's kind of depressing, but here's the good news. Six weeks into the 2019 CFL season, the two top teams in the CFL, and right now the consensus best teams in the league, Hamilton and Winnipeg, kind of makes this game tomorrow night important and relevant and worth watching early in the season. Ed Tate was a longtime writer for the Winnipeg Free Press, and now he is the director of content for the Blue Bombers and BlueBombers.com. He joins us now. Ed, how are you today? I'm fantastic. Scott, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Welcome to beautiful Hamilton. I know you just got in today and, you know, you're enjoying the new stadium and all the rest. Uh, Tell me something, Ed. How is it possible that two great, gritty, long-time football cities like these two could be the places stuck in the worst droughts in the league? Well, you you made me laugh, Scott, when you were rattling off those numbers because... In the Bombers' drought, you could even include the Baltimore Stallions. That's don't true. Exist anymore, <laughs> as having won a cup. That's true. Since the Bombers, you know, it's people in in Winnipeg uh, have thought that this team has been cursed for a while. I'll kind of, I'll, I'll do the uh, abridged version here. Ninety-two, they go to the Grey Cup. Matt Dunnigan is coming off an injury, faces Calgary and Doug Flutie. They lose. The next year, they go to the Grey Cup again. Matt Dunnigan's the quarterback. They've got an excellent football team. He gets hurt in the last regular season game, and they start with Sammy Garza at quarterback and lose. 2001, Bombers have a 14-4 and team that won 12 in a row. A dominant squad. Lose to the 8-10 and Calgary Stampeders in a colossal upset. 2007, Bombers. 
go to the Great Cup. Uh, in the East Final, Kevin Glenn gets hurt in the fourth quarter. I remember that, broke his arm. Broke his arm, and they have to start Ryan Dinwiddie, who makes his first ever pro start in the Great Cup. They lose to Saskatchewan. 2011 Bombers go to the Great Cup. Real good squad again, dominated by defense, but they're playing the BC Lions in their backyard. The Lions win. And on top of all the other misery, that's just the misery that the, the Bombers fan base has suffered in the championship week. So uh, it's been a long time. I'll tell you what, I started covering the team in 1990, the last time they won. And uh, So it's your I, fault. It's my fault, yeah. <laughs> but it's so long ago, I had a full head of hair back then, and I don't now, and it seems like forever ago, Scott. Well, I'll tell you something. Yesterday I was writing, or the day before, I was writing about the new inductees into the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame that are coming up, and Bernie Filoni is one of them. Right. And back when he was quarterback in the Ticats, seven out of eight years they went to the Grey Cup. Every year, it seemed, they played against Winnipeg and lost. I was going through it, I remembered. So there was a time when yeah. Winnipeg would go there and win regularly. You know, those were those are the glory days in, in Winnipeg sports history in the late 50s and early 60s. It was Hamilton and Winnipeg all the time, and the Bombers won four out of five Grey Cups from 58 to 62, so that's still talked about in Winnipeg, and it's still, 1990 is still talked in Winnipeg too, but there's a whole generation of fans who haven't seen a Grey Cup parade, and, and people are they're pretty excited right now in Winnipeg, but... Uh, Everybody gets evaluated on what happens in November, and it's yeah. especially so on Winnipeg with this franchise. That said, you mentioned the word cursed. I'm wondering, you know, it is a new generation. I'm wondering if there's a feeling out there that, you know what, this, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but this looks like it could be the year. Or is yeah. there a sense of doom and fatalism that, of course, it's all going to go off the rails eventually? <laughs> there's there's the, both of those things, right? I mean, there's, there is excitement about this team because it's, it is really good. Uh, it's going to get a great matchup tomorrow against Hamilton, but this is as deep a team as I've seen in a while. So there are a lot of people that are, you know, got both feet on the bandwagon and are ready to ready to roll with this squad. And then there are those people that have been teased and and cursed before and and don't want to get too excited about this thing until the frost is on the pumpkin, as they used to say. <laughs> well, so you, it's early in the season. I get that for sure. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, you do have. A matchup between, as I said off the top, the two teams that are right now, I think, widely considered the two best in the league. It's in Hamilton, so it's an extra challenge for Winnipeg. What does a win tomorrow, if you guys win, if Winnipeg wins, what does a win tomorrow do to either bolster or assuage the fan base that, you know what, we actually are for real here? I think it puts a few more people like on that bandwagon that I've talked about. But one thing that's been interesting about this team, and, and people in Winnipeg kind of roll their eyes about it, but... They talk, and it's cliche in Winnipeg, but they talk about just going 1-0 and each week. We're going to go 1-0 and this week. We're going to go 1-0 and next week. What happened last week doesn't matter. What might be on the horizon next week doesn't matter. So that's the mantra of this team. And I don't know, maybe some people are following along with that as well. You know, the Bombers are, have got two more games in a five games in a row against the East Division. Then things start to get uh, interesting with some more interdivision games. There's a lot of there's a school of thought in this league, and has been forever that the, the season doesn't really begin until Labor Day. Mm-hmm. And with Winnipeg having the Labor Day Banjo Bowl backup with Saskatchewan back-to-back weekends, that's something that 
a lot of people say, well, let's evaluate them then and, and see how they stack up then. It would be hard, though, I would think, to just do the 1-0 and thing when uh, my colleague Steve Milton pulled out a number uh, that I couldn't believe, and he said it's been 59 years since the Bombers started 5-0. and You start throwing out numbers like that, it's hard not to get a little ahead of yourself. Yeah, you're right, Scott. This is the third best start in Bomber history. So the 1960 team won 10 in a row, and the 1939 team won 8 in a row. Now, the, the 39 team... Uh, which is a, which is a ways back. There's probably nobody still back. alive. Yeah, that team won the Grey Cup, but here again is the cursed angle. The 1960 team won ten in a row to start, finished 14 and two, and then back then they had one of those uh, best of three West finals. And Kenny Plain, the Hall of Fame quarterback, breaks his hand in the first game. Uh, bada bing, bada boom, the Bombers are out and don't even make it to the Grey Cup. So um, again, there's a lot of people that seem to get excited about this team, but there's a lot of people that also kind of watch games with the, their hands over their face and kind of look between them. <laughs> like Friday the 13th. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, besides the fact that this is early and you wrote properly, you wrote on the website today, way too early to start really talking about a Grey Cup preview. Uh, there are still some compelling parts about this game for sure, and one of them is that the two coaches, Mike O'Shea and Orlando Steinauer, they know each other very, very, very well, teammates for a long time. Do you think that familiarity translates in any way at all onto the sidelines? I think the only thing that happens is that the, the pregame handshake and postgame handshake might be a little bit more uh, enthusiastic <laughs> than normal. But um, if, if you know these guys, especially Mike O'Shea, um, that will have no bearing at all in this game. In fact, Earlier in the week, the league had a conference call featuring the two head coaches and two quarterbacks of these teams, and that, that angle came up then, Scott. And uh, both of them were really wax poetic, I guess, about each other and, and how good they were as teammates and their friendship. But uh, I think uh, as we get closer to kickoff, that uh, you know that kind of mutual admiration will, will kind of wane a little bit because... I know for Coach O'Shea, when the ball's put on the tee, it won't matter who's on the for sure. sideline there. For yeah. sure, and that's the personal side. I'm thinking more along the lines of the way they played. D- does the way they played translate at all, do you think, into the way they coached, knowing each other's tendencies on the field and the way they played football? Do you think it gives either an advantage to f- figure what the other is going to do? I'm not so sure. Scott, maybe. I mean, perhaps. I mean, the thing that's... I mean. In Winnipeg's case, both coordinators are the ones that really kind of put the identity on how they defend and how they try to score. And Richie Hall and Paul Apolise, the defensive and offensive coordinators, have both been in this league forever. So I think that's easier to maybe get a handle on than what Orlando Steinhauer's crew has and put together in Hamilton here. So I'm not sure that it's there's any kind of impact in, in terms of knowing each other, whether they're you know gamblers or whether they're going to, know uh, you know take some chances here i I think that uh, both of them have proven that their squads are going to be ready and and perhaps uh or orlando steinauer might be warning his guys that mike o'shea likes to try some different things on special teams but i'm sure that mike o'shea's telling his crew the same thing about jeff reinbold <laughs> yeah, so, now I, I don't know if this is true there were reports a couple of years ago, maybe it was, maybe even last year, but a couple of years ago for sure, there were reports that Mike O'Shea was about one loss away from being fired. First of all, do you believe that that was the case, that he came close to being out in Winnipeg? No, I don't, Scott. That became kind of a popular narrative. They started off 1-4 and in 2016, which was my first year uh, running BlueBombers.com or helping run it. And 
they made a quarterback change from Drew Willie to Matt Nichols, uh, it, and it wasn't made out of desperation. It wasn't made uh, as a we better do this because the next move is to fire the head coach. It was made just to kind of uh, light a spark, and here we are all these years later, and, and Matt Nichols has established himself as a you know a legit number one quarterback in this league. But I don't think at any time was Wade Miller the president or Kyle Walters, the GM, thinking of firing Mike O'Shea. You have to realize that, you know, before he took over, the Bombers were a mess. They were the laughing stock of the league. They had gone through a bunch of changes. Nobody wanted to sign in Winnipeg as a free agent. And it takes time to fix that. The Canadian content was terrible after some horrible drafting. And so I, I think even in the poor start at 2016, they were willing to, to 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 bite the bullet for a while to let him establish something and to try to rebuild something because it had, it was really a scorched earth when he took over. And one of the things that had been problem a problem in Winnipeg is that they kept firing coaches and GMs. And so Wade Miller and and Kyle Walters decided to stick with Mike. And, and I think it's proven to be the right decision. Well, he's, I mean, he's certainly proven his chops, especially this year. I mean, you, can, you can't argue that Mike O'Shea has not done an exceptional job this season, early as it is. Yeah, I mean, and, I, you know, you can go back. The, the Bombers uh, heading into this year had the second-best regular season record in the CFL over those two, two three years to Calgary. Um, of, of course, as I said earlier, everybody gets judged in November. They, they won their first playoff game under Coach O'Shea last year and lost in the West Final. So the steps haven't been as quick as a lot of people have wanted, uh, but it's hard to argue that there hasn't been progress, too. And, that, and it's great that he wasn't, even though by the sounds of it, it was never a reality or a real possibility. But it's great because, you know, some the older fans certainly remember how Mike O'Shea is loved around here. And when I say loved, my tongue is poking right through my cheek. I mean, there, there is a long history of Mike O'Shea hatred. More so, it seems, at Iverwind. Now that they moved into Tim Horton's field, the digs are a little nicer. It seems everyone's a little more friendly to everybody. But that that hatred is still there. I'm sure Mike is still going to hear it from people. Is there? It's been so long since there was a meaningful, truly impactful playoff game between Winnipeg and Hamilton. Is there any feeling towards Hamilton and Winnipeg among the fans? Is there any sense of rivalry, or is that something that has to be rebuilt? You know... It's interesting. I think it was a lot more present, Scott, when Winnipeg was in the East Division. Yes, and, yeah. And one of the problems that's happened in, in Winnipeg, in my opinion, is that this team, is this franchise, has bought back and forth between divisions so often through the 2000s that people, you know, there was a generation that grew up with Winnipeg as an East Division team, and then it switched to the West and it went back to the East. And I think that really has killed rivalries. The, the only one that's still really heated is Winnipeg and Saskatchewan, and that's as much just that's that's just tradition that mm. you, it's the same as Toronto versus Hamilton, right? I think that uh, it's it's changed. It, it was different when Winnipeg was in the same division as Hamilton. Uh, I think there's a, if there's anything, it's there's a almost a fellow sympathy for like you started off with <laughs> the long suffering. Yeah, the long suffering fans in both markets, and I. You know, I talked to Jim Marcus Hardrick yesterday, the Bombers' right tackle, and he just talked about how he loves coming to Hamilton. That for a guy that grew up in the U.S. South, that it feels like coming to Pittsburgh for him. And he said it feels like football, and I think that's as much out of respect as anything. It's not, 
any kind of a heated rivalry thing. Ed Tate, always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate you having me on, Scott. Thanks, man. Have a good day. You too. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A few years back, and I won't say exactly how many, but my next guest broke onto the Canadian music scene as the face and the voice of the Parachute Club. You know that band, right? Of course you do. They put out a bunch of music, but one song in particular, well, you're going to know this one really, really well. You know that one, right? Sort of. I think that was the the new <laughs> the remix dance track, but you know the song. And uh, I should have warned you ahead of time. That song is now going to be in your head for the next like week and a half or so. It's a very, very catchy tune. Anyway, that song became a huge hit in July of 1983. Every Canadian that listened to any kind of music station knew it, heard it, and now understands why it's so familiar. It's a great, fun, feel-good, uplifting song. So why mention it again now? Why bring this up now? Well, because Lorraine Segato, who many of you will know is from Hamilton, has reworked it a bit, and that song is now being re-released in 2019. Not just one version of it either, two versions of it will be coming out. Uh, happy to be joined by Lorraine Segato. How are you, ma'am? Thanks for calling. Thanks for doing this. Very good. Nice to speak with you. You as well. Uh, i got to ask you, lots and lots, I was thinking of this today, lots of artists... Uh, copy and cover, not copy, but cover other artists and other band songs. I'm trying to think, there's not too many, though, that have copied or covered or redone their own songs over the years. <laughs> That's not true. I think that uh, Sting, every once in a while, kind mm-hmm. of always references himself in one song or another. He'll use a, you know, a sample from something like Every Breath You Take in a new song, but I, uh, uh, yeah. Eric Clapton did it with Layla. He did the acoustic version, but that's uh-huh. about the two that I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, I don't, yeah, I don't recall actually ever hearing that. So why, what was your thinking then when you decided you were going to bring back Rise Up and good for you for doing it because again, it's a, it's an iconic Canadian song. Why, why, why redo it? Well, there were a couple things going on. One is that, you know, throughout the years, it's been 35 years and, um, Throughout the years, people have always said to me, like, the song still feels so relevant, especially everything that's going on in the world, and why don't you do it again, or why don't you get someone to cover it? And we were approaching the the 35th anniversary, and I thought, I wouldn't mind redoing it again, but it's got to be a little different. It has to feel like it has some meaning and purpose around a project. You know, and recently I'd been really inspired by the youth activists of today that are concerned about climate change and the Parkland survivors and and the kids who even went out on strike around the education cuts. And I thought, um, this feels like a song for them. Um, You know, it was a song for when it first came out, it it really was a call for empowerment and social, social justice and around issues of equality. And, you know, it's really weird, but we're all kind of, uh, back in the circle again of being concerned around the same things. So I thought, if I release it, let's do it in a different way. And uh, we decided to do it as a charity single, um, A, and then we also decided to do it as an intergenerational uh, mix between myself and Julie from Parachute Club singing and some younger emerging artists. So it had a lot of 
stuff in there that made it interesting to me. You, you said that you've had people say, why don't you get someone to cover it? Surely over the years, other people have covered this song. No, I often get requests by choirs, um, you know, choral choirs to do arrangements or specific community events, you know, where they want to cover the song and they're respectful enough to reach out and say, hey, do you have an arrangement and do you mind if I do this for this, uh, you know, event or, or whatever. But as a recorded song, it's never been covered before. I, I find that shocking. I know. It's kind of wild, right? So they keep playing the old song, so that's good. And now they have some other options. <laughs> well, how much of this, I mean, I got to ask this, how much of this is self-defense for you as well? Because I can't imagine you get to play ever a set anywhere, anytime, any, for anybody that they don't demand that you play this song. Now at least you have an option. That is so true. You know, um, it's there was a point in time, I have to say, where I was feeling kind of like, oh, my God, every, I know that this is the song they're waiting for, even though we had all this other great music. And um, I started to feel resentful about it. And then I got over that really quickly because I thought to myself, who gets an opportunity to sustain this long with one song? You know, uh, a song that sort of has um, reached such breadth and depth um, and represents so much for so many mm. people. So then I just moved into incredible gratitude. <laughs> you know, just gratitude every day that people still want to hear it. Well, and a few so, years a few years ago, Paul McCartney was here in Hamilton. He was playing at First Ontario Centre, and it really dawned on me with him. Now, of course, he is the, I don't know, the pinnacle of songwriting and everything else, but... I thought to myself, it must be, and I'll never have this happen to me, it must be the coolest thing ever, though, Lorraine, when you have written a song, performed a song, you're up there singing it, and the people in the crowd know it well enough that they are singing your words and your tune back to you. Oh, yeah, that feels, that, I have to say, does feel amazing. Um, and it feels amazing because you know that they have uh, specific memories attached to it, you know, like, um, I get so many people who come up to me and they say, um, oh, I was here when I first heard this song. Yep. And, you know, um, and, and I, from across the country and parts of Europe, like, I hear this all the time. They tell me they're rise up stories. In fact, I have often <laughs> thought I should write a book. You should. Because some of them are, are incredible. Like, some of the stories they tell me are really incredible. And, um, and so, you know... Like when that happens, then you you feel nothing but gratitude around the fact that that you know no matter what what set you're playing, that will appear in it because that is a cap. There can't be a Canadian Lorraine who was over I don't know five years old in 1983 and onward. There cannot be a Canadian that doesn't know that song. Well, you know what? When we when I was younger and we had just started out in the song really started to hit in radio. And, you know, what helped it along uh, immensely was the fact that um, much music had just started mm. and TV was really big at that point or just starting. Um, and so our song was also on, uh, you know, relentless kind of video rotation. And But my perspective as a young artist was that um, I kept thinking that the people that were hearing it were really people of my own age or the people that came to concerts, maybe people a little bit older. But since that time, so many people have come up to me who are young people, 
in in their 30s and 40s or at a certain age and they say you know i was a teenager when my parents were playing this song <laughs> and 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 that's been a, a great eye opener you know around like i was so oblivious to that and that surprised me do you remember writing it i well there were five of us who wrote that song so i i, re- I specifically remember the moment yeah we we had just gotten a demo uh record done uh with Grant Avenue with Daniel Lanois at Grant Avenue and they had um the record company had sort of pitched the demo to I think it was in in con it was called Midem where they pitched to the larger uh record companies and we just got the word back saying okay you're not making a demo anymore you're making a whole record so we were kind of scrambling, <laughs> you know, for for songs. So this this wasn't the song that earned you your record. This came after. No, crazy thing. It was one of the last songs we finished writing and recording, and um, and it was and it was really Daniel Lanois who gave it its sonic, I would say, clothing. You know, he gave it uh, this sonic appeal that really defined our band and our sound and really defined all the rest of the songs that he produced as well. That, that was really gave us our sound. Did this one come easy though? When you sat down to write it, was this one that you guys slaved over or did this one sort of come together rather easily? Well, it came together from many different sources. For instance, the groove part of it, you know, the soca beat, that's the drum beat in the original came easy because Billy and I, my, my co-founding partner, we'd gone to Trinidad and we were very influenced by the music there. So that whole thing was living within us, and that aspect came very easy. But then when it came to lyrics, um, we had three different sets of lyrics, and our dear friend Lynn Fernie, who is the unofficial extra member of the group, said, I have this chorus, which I think is really, really cool, and these other lyrics, have a look at this. So then it was kind of, I remember being in Grant Ave, and Danny's like, okay, let's go for it. And I'm just flashing, you know, pieces of paper in front of me, grabbing a line here, <laughs> rewriting a line there. We knew what the chorus would be, but we weren't quite settled on the like the totality of the lyrics yet. So, so it was a very, I would say, it was kind of a magical moment where it just kind of all fell into place at the last moment, right? Did you think though that when that was one of the last ones and you were putting the album, was that the one that immediately in your mind you said, "Oh, that's the one that we're going to be, uh, that's going to be our legacy forever." Well, you know what? I have to be honest with you because the band loved the song and I loved it less. I was like, I wasn't, I didn't quite know. I didn't have any sense that it would, you know, go anywhere. How could I know? It was my first record and I I wasn't sure what radio would jump to. But I'll tell you something. The first time I heard the song when I was living in Toronto at, at College Street in Little Italy and it was the summer and this guy kind of drove by in a convertible with his top down, and I heard the strains of the song on That's the cool. street. And I was like, oh, my God. That is very song. cool. And that was the first time I heard it, and, and it, it was in that moment I got a sense of what what could possibly happen, you know? Uh, by the way, while I'm digging into the past with this, I, I should probably know the answer to this. I don't. Where did the name Parachute Club come from? Um. We, the way the band came together was 
it was a very spontaneous thing. We were doing a gig for the Toronto Film Festival, and um, Billy and I were playing in all these other bands, and none of those bands could make it. So the film festival said, put together a band for this show. Can you do it? And we're like, sure. And then they said, we need a name. And it came together because um, we had this postcard that was, it was an African postcard called Drummer Monkey. And it was, it was parachuting into an African graveyard. This monkey was huh. parachuting. <laughs> it was a very abstract postcard, which we all loved. And we just went through these things. What about Drummer Monkey? What about blah, blah, blah? What about Parachute Club? What about the Parachute Club? And that's how that came to be. Well, it's, it, it, it is a much better decision than Drummer Monkey. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, we only have a couple minutes left, but I want to get back to the song for a second, because when you go to redo a song that, as I said, is iconic, and I think, again, anyone who is of a certain age, and I would think, well, five years old in 1983, so you can do the math, whatever that is, but everybody knows this, it, there would have to be a bit of a, a challenge or a danger or something when you go to redo it that you don't let's be honest, screw it up because it's, it's, everyone knows it so well. You, you, you don't want to redo it and then have everyone say, Ooh, wow, that was, yeah, how do you do sure. that? Yeah. You're always afraid of that. And of course you don't want to only live off of your laurels around it. And I think what made it interesting for us to do was that, um, again, just to speak to the project, which is a campaign around engaging uh, youth activists, um, and helping, you know, like having the charities uh, be fed through uh, the streams and downloads of the song, what made it easy to do was that I thought, you know, I think there is new music coming out right now, and maybe there is a fresher approach that we can take if we use emerging artists. I mean, there's also a version of the song, I think you're aware of the diesel mix and the anniversary mix, but there's even another mix that we have. The country is, one. Which is the country one yes. called Rise Up Redux. And so it's not like I'm going to revisit this song again. So <laughs> I thought, like, let, let's just try as many fresh mixes as we can and include as many, you know, alternate people as we can. So you could go on forever with this. Have the Euro Dance Club mix uh, and the rap could, mix and the heavy metal mix. That, and the... This, has been a, this has been a campaign for me that has been two years in the kind of planning and, you know, trying to you know, get the right people and getting the funding through Slate and all of that. And, um, you know, this actually even originated in Hamilton through a group of people here when we were trying to get it going again here. So um, I think these things take time. Mm. I don't know that I want to keep revisiting <laughs> this particular project, but I am very happy with what we have, and I think that we might be able to engage um, a youthful audience and, and and allow this to be a song for their generation around empowerment. Well, and I'm you said ho- you said I'm hoping you the and the emerging artists that you've brought in, as you said, I mean newer faces. Did they know this song when they came, or did they have to learn it? Um, yeah, no, a lot of them knew had heard it, which, which is what you said before. Which blew my mind. <laughs> Uh, just before I let you go, I do want to ask this one thing because it, it has struck me, and I don't want to play the old man card here, but it, the lyrics are very upbeat and very positive and very optimistic, and it, it seems that, I don't know, maybe maybe because I grew up in the 80s, that there was a lot more of that kind of lyric and that kind of 
fun and happy and upbeat lyrics in music, then it seems like we're at a bit of a darker time, a little more serious, maybe a little more of a downer. Am, yeah. am I am I wrong or am I no, right? No, you're that... not wrong at all. I think a lot of people, I, first of all, you know, look, there's an epidemic of anxiety amongst younger kids. You know, they're worried about a lot of things, right? And then we as adults have seen the circles uh, of change come back around to be revisiting the same things we were worried about way back then, right? So it is, in fact, it's been a a more challenging time and a more complex time in our world. And and part of the reason why we kind of wanted to do this project again was to say you can have a message in something, but you also need to be really positive and upbeat and you need to infuse people with hope. You know, there has to be hope in the darkness. There has to be because um, that allow that gives us the energy to move forward and to change. And also, you know, every revolution needs a good dance song, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got one now. Uh, Lorraine Sagato from the Parachute Club. I've wanted to have you on for a long time. Finally, found a good reason to do it. And uh, right. again, two uh, two versions of Rise Up are now out. You can find them on YouTube. You can find them everywhere you can download music or find them. Uh, Lorraine, really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thanks so much. Great. And and if you don't mind me saying, um, if people are interested in the charities we're sending the information to, like the downloads to, just go to torontofoundation.ca, rise up, share your power, and you'll learn exactly what we're doing there. Excellent. Thanks, Lorraine. Appreciate right. it. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Here is a little bit of a taste of the new version, the remix, the redone version from 2019 of Rise Up as we go to commercial. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.